Hello and welcome to a special episode we are calling How to Launch an Ecosystem, inspired by our guest, Nicole Howell. Welcome to the show. Hi, everybody. This episode is still brought to you by Marku and Aurora, bridging the gaps between business, science, and consumers in cannabis and psychedelics. I am Jehan Marku, your lead moderator for the group discussion today. And as usual, I'm joined by Dr. Negam Aurora. Hey, everyone. And Dr. Sarah Jane Ward. Happy to be here as always. And David Valencourt, our resident GMP expert. Hey, everybody. I'm excited to expand into an ecosystem space. Awesome, David. Nicole Howe is our guest today. She is a psychonaut lawyer and co-founder of the Clark Howe Law Firm that serves the cannabis and psychedelics industry. And we have a great show for you, listener, where we're going to talk about California decriminalizing psychedelics, a new partnership for a psychedelic research center with the University of Sciences, and a special fair in Thailand where diners got to try 140 cannabis mixed dishes. For our rapid fire science, we'll discuss some new data about predicting responses to psychedelics in human beings, as well as a follow-up article on the use of marijuana and outcomes in trauma patients, also a bit predictive on what happens if you have an injury and you're using cannabis. Our game today will be Guess the Psychedelics, which will be moderated by Dr. Nigam Aurora. We'll be right back after this break. Now it's time for us to peruse and discuss some news and popular science articles. This is the non-peer-reviewed portion of the show, and away we go. As California trips, so trips the nation, to paraphrase an old saying, a California bill would decriminalize psychedelics and expunge psychedelic records. This is a big move. Uh, Senator Scott Weiner says that the war on drugs has been a complete failure. It hasn't stopped people from using drugs and it hasn't stopped addiction. Um, you know, what can you say about a multi-billion, several decades long war against inanimate objects? Um, but apparently it's not going so well. So California could be on the verge of becoming the largest state to decriminalize psychedelics for personal and therapeutic use. This bill would also potentially allow adults to cultivate, possess, distribute, transport, and consume mushrooms in California. Um, you know, David, I want to go to you first. I mean, when I think of humans cultivating and distributing and transporting, consuming products, I think quality and safety. So I want to you know give you a chance to respond first to this news. Yeah. So, I mean, when you think about the size, right, California, from an economic standpoint, if their own entity, it would be the fifth largest economy in the world as a country. So the impact of this is not insignificant, to say the least. Right. And when you think about the amount of people that would be impacted and have access and, you know, at least from a criminal justice standpoint, this is huge. 
Um, one of the risks to your point, Jehan, that you know I would that I always think about, and you know we've watched this um, with the cannabis industry and how different states and governments have regulated it. There, what what's the risk to you know safety, um, you know safety, consistency, and integrity of the product? Um, because if this expands more market access um, without any sort of framework or oversight in terms of maintaining integrity. The risks of you know the risk profile of of, uh, of creating synthesizing these kinds of products is is a bit higher from a risk profile than cannabis. You know there's more and we haven't even talked about drug to drug interactions, which I know is something we've talked about from a cannabis standpoint as well. So we really need to be careful to consider all of that. That said, um, this is a huge new huge first uh, huge step forward from a criminal justice reform, and I'm really excited about that. Um, but we definitely have to be careful. I would say, as a business, um, businesses getting into this, um, you know, we've we see the stigma in cannabis, and every mistake that a cannabis business makes is just a perfect example for anybody that is not a fan of this to use as a as a weapon in some ways to say this is why we should not be you know decriminalizing it. So we need to be really careful um, as anybody going into this world um, space to to have high integrity uh, standard practices, etc. But you know that said, I'm obviously not a lawyer, and there's so many more things involved there. So from a legal framework, um, you know, while a GMP or quality systems person is responsible for interpreting a lot of the regulations from a science perspective and saying this is how you actually meet the you know the spirit of the regs in our day-to-day operations, um, you know, I'd love to kind of send it over to Nicole to see what her thoughts are from the the framework and the intent behind it. Great, thanks, thanks, David. Um, yeah, I mean, I'll echo um, some of what you've said, which is 100% decriminalization is what we need across the board. So on that very basic level, this is, um, uh, you know, a tremendous effort by, by, by Scott Wiener's office. Um, we've, we've been you know, in contact with their office as they were drafting the, the legislation. Um, they've, been, they've been great to work with. They've really been seeking um, and soliciting input from a lot of stakeholders. So I know that it was the, it's, it's the product of, of a lot of um, uh, stakeholder involvement. Um, so I think, it's a, I think it's a good bill um, in terms of decriminalizing. Um, Oregon has taken the first step with its initiative to decriminalize all drugs, which is, you know, um, the way now that things will go. I mean, the you know the the war on drugs is nowhere near over, but it is certainly uh, it is certainly crumbling, um, and this is another step in that direction. Um, you know, I um, my, I have a, a pr- pretty particular perspective on this, as I understand you folks have um, at another time discussed um, an article that I wrote. Um, where I talked about my experience, our experience as attorneys and, and folks working in the cannabis space. Um, and the cannabis, you know, as your listeners probably know, but just to kind of recap a little bit, um, you know, cannabis was in a sense decriminalized. I won't get into, go into all the nuances of, of, of that, but was was decriminalized in, in 1996 um, and then unregulated by California for about 20 years. Um, we did have a system collective model during that time. Um, but the, the, the lack of any real regulation um, during that time really allowed a very robust um, traditionally capitalist, um, you know, industry to grow up. Um, you know, there will be a lot of, you know, folks would point to, well, it was nonprofit. It was collective model. It was, you know, people have different perspectives on it. Um, but my perspective as an attorney, you know, working in that space and then since and since then is that, you know, when you when you 
create kind of a vacuum of rules. Um, our um, kind of default way of being in the world, which tends to be in this culture, one of um, of um, profits first, um, and everything else is a, is a by the way, or um, or is seriously uh, negatively impacted like the environment in many of our watersheds in California by having unregulated cannabis for so many years. So, you know, I, I think the bill is, is, is great um, in the decrim effort. Um, and I don't, you know, the social sharing part of it, I understand the, um, I understand the impulse, um, but I, I am concerned that it is recreating um, a system that we had with cannabis where, you know, you give a little, you crack the door open to social sharing and then the risks are removed for really just businesses kind of going for it. And so by the time we get to having regulation, um, it will be the industry at that point. Um, and I'm putting that in quotes because I don't like using that word um, about around the psychedelics space. And thank you so much for, um, for that tip at the beginning. Um, because I think that by using that word, um, we bring all the trappings of what industry means in the sense of, um, you know, startup, then venture capital, then exit, then, you know, all these, all these traditional notions of, um, of traditional market capitalism that I think we, um, many of us want to avoid. And mm -hmm. there's a lot of good thought leadership and, and business um, practices in that direction, but it's a, you know, it is a, uh, it's a, it's a big tide to push against. So um, I would love to know, I would love to know what, um, what Sarah thinks about um, some of what, what David said about the, um, you know, obviously the difference in synthesizing some of these um, chemical compounds as opposed to cannabis and what you view as some of those, some of those risks, I'd be really interested in hearing that. Yeah, I think, thank you, Nicole and David, those were such excellent points. <clears throat> um, I think you're, you're, you both, you know, touch on something really important that is to make sure that this is done in the safest and most responsible way. Um, and you know, clearly by maintaining some oversight over this, you know, to try to make sure that any products that people are using are safe and are regulated. And, and I think this speaks to, to something that I find really important about this article and this conversation is that I think everyday Americans need to be better educated on this approach and on the pros to this approach. So, you know, as you all know, my background is as a substance abuse researcher. And so my favorite line in this article is that the war on drugs has not gotten rid of addiction. And so, you know, the criminalization of drugs and people who suffer from drug use disorders, um, you know, that is, it is not the solution to send people to jail who use drugs that people you know, are concerned about their their safety. Um, so I think that it's important to communicate the different reasons why decriminalization is a good idea, including the fact that we need to stop stigmatizing people who have substance use disorders. And so, as I always say, the thing I love about this article is that it needs to promote more conversation 
every day around the dinner table? How do people feel about drug decriminalization? Why do some people still feel that being a substance user um, warrants somebody being arrested and, and put into jail? Um, and, and the other piece that you were speaking to, Nicole, is that people need to be assured that in the removal of these drugs being illegal, that other measures are put into place to ensure um, people's safety. I hear a lot of times with so many different things, when, when something new happens, um, oh, cannabis is going to be recreational legal, or there's going to be flying cars in 10 years. People immediately jump to that's impossible, that will never be safe, and sort of forget that we do have rational mechanisms if everybody is interested to, to make new things safe. <laughs> um, so those are, those are sort of my general thoughts on the article. Those are really good thoughts, you know, and, um, you know, I think Ayn Rand would be so proud of this laissez-faire approach to public health and safety. And, you know, it reminds me to paraphrase, you know, I love paraphrasing quotes, but uh, sell, a person, sell a person a mushroom and they'll trip for a day teach them how to cultivate mushrooms and you ruin a perfectly good business opportunity. <laughs> but uh, Nigam, before we close out this section, I just want to get maybe your thoughts on this article that, you know, I know that we have discussed it during the week. Um, and one of the things that we talked about in the past was the biodiversity of psychedelics, the psychedelic fauna. And, you know, gosh, I hope that we don't make the same mistake that's being made with the Sonoran desert toad where it's sort of being licked out of existence uh but could you maybe speak to that like it's, it's how to launch an ecosystem what about the psychedelic fauna ecosystem does this bill do anything for that to protect that yeah so um i do really like what what nicole's bringing to the table about the ecosystem in fact um i'm the one who told nicole that we would rename the show when she came on so um anyways uh yeah i agree with that um uh, Jehan, I like what you're what you're raising. Uh, there was one thing in this specific article that was related to um, some sort of like protection or thoughtfulness beyond like just the the pure legality and kind of hedging the war on drugs, like Nicole talked about. And that was they were saying that on there's a list of approved drugs or substances, but not on that list is specifically not on that list is peyote buttons. And the reason is because they don't want people to go out and try to harvest these things so oh i can have a truckload of peyote now and i'm not in trouble so let me just go into the desert and pick all the buttons i can find well that's not really good for um indigenous populations who use that for um their own practices right and then just generally that's not good for the literal biological ecosystem right um and and that goes back to exactly what jayhan you were saying about the sonoran desert toad and we've reviewed that article recently um and you know you jayhan you have this great way of uh making kind of intense things you know light and palatable you know licking them out of existence is i mean yeah we can laugh about it now but it's like it's it's really kind of not funny you know and to let's say that that were to happen to the species of cactus that uh these peyote buttons grow on like that would also be bad so um that was cool to see that little tidbit in in that proposed <clears throat> uh legislation but i do um support a lot of what nicole's saying that it's uh th there's a lot to be done and there's a lot of kind of caring that people need a, a lot of awareness a lot of caring that needs to happen to 
for this to become an ecosystem versus another profit chasing industry. If I could, oh, go ahead. Please. It, yeah, just on the on the pay. I'm glad you brought up the the peyote um, provision, and and yeah, you hit the nail on the head um, for sure, Nigam, in terms of you know ecological Im impacts. Um, but I, you know, the other thing that is really great about this bill, and, and kind of what I alluded to with the stakeholder input, is that you know the the removal or the you know not including peyote in these um, decriminalization efforts has been a conversation across the country every time there there has been a, a decrim effort, um, and it really it really has to do with it being a spiritual sacrament of the of the Native American Church um, and and Native Americans you know in in various locations where the cactus grows, and so this is like one tiny step um, in the right direction toward. Um, acknowledging the way that that you know Europeans have you know destroyed and colonized this continent and took everything for um, its own use and so this is like one one way here that this ecosystem is actually acknowledging the indigenous roots of, of our psychedelic um, you know plants and medicines and saying okay like we're not going to decide what's best on this we're not going to put our, um, our our white laws on your indigenous sacrament so that's a really good thing. Great points, great points. I, I could talk about um, the future of psychedelics um, all day. Oh wait, I think that's what we are going to do. Uh, but one of the things that is exciting is beyond making these things available for people while keeping everyone safe and not only the environment, but the economy um, and health, is doing research on these things and, and, and some of the novel things we're going to discover, compounds the universe has never seen before. And Compass Pathways, a nonprofit turned pharma company backed by Peter Thiel, you know, founder of PayPal, has just given $500,000 to the University of the Sciences in Philadelphia to start a psychedelics research center, a drug discovery center. Now, Sarah, you're a researcher and professor in you know Pennsylvania at a university there, five hundred thousand dollars. I don't know. It kind of seems. I mean, it seems like a lot of money to spend in a year, but um, it doesn't seem like it's that much money for basic research, especially in a field where there's so much to do. Um, so I'm wondering if you could maybe just give us a little bit of a yin and yang on you know private money coming to a university for something like this, and you know, is this going to really you think this is really going to like break the ceiling of psychedelic research or is this just like speed money to see what happens yeah thanks jehan um yeah so of course this this article had me slobbering <laughs> um yeah i'll take five hundred thousand dollars in my laboratory um you know i think the the more important it's always you know we're always money grubbing um our research laboratories to support our research, but in the the field of cannabis um, specifically, the bigger challenge, as you've all heard me gripe over and over again on this show, is the legal ability to do the research. So, go quickly going back to the previous article, um, you know, decriminalization of these drugs, hopefully someday at a federal level, will help to just allow research efforts to explode. And, you know, legal regulations greatly impair our ability to research these compounds in the laboratory. And so an important 
piece of this article of a of a company giving money to a university to research psychedelics is the the willingness of a university to engage in this kind of research. And so researchers need the support of their institutions to back them to say, yes, we are willing to publicly support researching of psychedelics or cannabis. We are willing to you know, allow you to bring money into your laboratory to do this kind of research. Um, and, you know, the, the, again, the most important piece is what will the Pennsylvania state laws and the federal laws allow people to do, whether it's in an animal laboratory or in a clinical laboratory. So it's a really excellent first step, but there are still, you know, remaining hurdles in that space. Thank you, Sarah. Yeah, I mean, Obviously, it's always great to get money um, to do research, especially you know private money. You don't have necessarily have to fill out a grant and check in with your grant officer and be like, "So, how's that data coming along?" But you know, I, I would love to see more of this. You know, some people are surprised that as long as I've been in cannabis research, I have never received a dollar from a private company in the cannabis space to do cannabis research. It's come from the National Institute of It's come from tobacco grants. Um, so I would just love to see more and more of this. And Nicole, I wanna go to you because you had a very interesting article in Double Blind Mag, one of the show's just favorite magazines we love to talk about, about reimagining capitalism. And do you think that what Compass Pathways is doing here should be required of all sort of companies coming into the psychedelic space, they should have a research arm or, or how could we incentivize all the, the sort of pharma-like psychedelics startups to do similar things? Yeah, thank you so much for that question. Um, yeah, I mean, I do think it should be in a sense required, not specifically um, prescribed, um, prescribed projects or pre prescribed um, stakeholders necessarily, but I would love to see um, a regulated system that requires the companies that are allowed to be licensed um, in any, you know, whatever we're talking about, um, whether it's, you know, under state law or federal, um, that those companies be organized as um, public benefit companies or companies that um, engage in stakeholder capitalism, um, where it isn't just the immediate um, business that that benefits from the the profiteering that will inevitably happen, um, but that we're thinking that companies are required because that's the way that you get people to do things that they aren't inclined to do is that you have to re require them to by law um, require companies to have um, a seat at the at the table for um, indigenous people um, for um, the planet you know for. Um, you know, any, any number of other larger stakeholders um, <clears throat> that we are not, um, we're not required now as just regular um, stock corporations or limited liability companies to factor in. Um, and so, you know, public benefit companies that actually have some teeth, not just requiring that as the corporate form, but that has some, um, some measure of accountability to it as well. Um, the other thing I just can't, I sort of can't resist saying about, since we're talking about Compass, um, is the is the distinction, you know, the the um, the stark distinction between the approach that Compass is taking and companies like Usona and Maps um, in terms of intellectual property. 
um, Compass has taken the very traditional, very protective route. And in fact, um, an article you, you all might want to cover at one at some point is one that I um, I read recently um, that I was alerted to by an attorney, an IP attorney named Graham um, Pachenik, um, about Compass having um, filed a patent application that includes the kinds of environment, um, the environment inside a psychedelic therapy uh, center. Uh, yeah, it's yeah, from my to my perspective a little outrageous. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, we, we talked about that one on the show. Absolutely. Um, you know, I you know they wanted to patent comfy chairs and patting someone on the shoulder to comfort them. And you know, that's when I submitted my patent for staring deeply into someone's eyes in psychedelic treatment. Um, yeah. Where does it stop? I mean, are they going to start patenting playlists on Spotify? Who knows? Um, but yeah, right. Right. And then that, so you probably talked also about the, the statement on open, open science that other, other companies, the other approaches that companies have taken, like Usona, who, you know, came up with a new way to, to synthesize psilocybin and just published it in a, in a, um, in a journal so everybody could use it. So that's kind of what I'm talking, that's like what I'm, what I'm advocating for, what so many of us are advocating for is a new way of being in this, um, in this new developing ecosystem. And those are the major linchpins of that is how are we gonna treat property and who is going to benefit from using that property? That is a wonderful um, concern and statement and something to think about. A great mind munchies, how are we going to deal with IP in the psychedelic space? And I think, you know, as more and more news about this pops up, I think we'd love to have you uh, back, Nicole, to discuss that. And there isn't, there has been some research out there about ethical implications of patenting um, psychedelics, uh, their synthesis, their use, their utility. But yeah, I can't imagine patenting a protocol like transferring a patient from one gurney to another. To another, it would just create more risk for the patient if clinicians can't follow certain basic protocols for safety. Well, uh, we are running short on some uh, how to launch an ecosystem time. So we're going to move to our next article. Um, I know you're all hungry for some information about cannabis. So this next one comes out of the Bangkok Post. And um, there was a, a recent approval was launched uh, for diners to get to try 140 cannabis mix at an exploratory fair, the cannabis is expected to start being harvested in June. And so there's going to be 40 restaurants in Chiang Mai, uh, which will let fairgoers try all these things. And so restaurants have been getting cannabis parts, um, such as, you know, the leaves, the buds, even the stems, um, even the roots to use uh, as ingredients. The, um, you know, this is really surprising to me because, quote unquote, people will be able to put the narcotic plants parts into food as ingredients. However, all the product will have to be grown under conditions authorized by farms by the law. And so far, I believe something like 82 community enterprises nationwide have been approved for cannabis plantations. Their words, not mine. <laughs> But again, the first 18 kilograms of fresh cannabis is supposed to be harvested in June. Um, Nigam, what do you think of this? Are you surprised that Bangkok is going to be having uh, a big cannabis food fair with restaurants making apparently cannabis-laced products for 
people to try. They have limited the number of people to 500 who can participate, you know, for, for COVID-19 reasons. Uh, but I could not believe this story. So uh, let's put COVID on the side. First thought, can I get a ticket, right? So let's go. Let's let's try that. I'd like to participate. So, But I guess with COVID, I'm just, you know, doing this podcast and thinking about it and wishing I could go. So um, I'm not really surprised. I've been tracking um, this for a while. So, um, you know, legality has come in that part of the world uh, maybe six months or a year ago. So... Um, you know, this is the next step to see them saying we're, you know, changing the law so it can be included in food. And then they're talking about later. It's also it seems like they're following like the U.S. Uh, version of like the they even have the same like agency names. I think they're like following like the different, you know, FDA kind of kind of style things. So they're saying that they're also going to change that so it can be used as like a drug substance or pharmaceutical substance legally. Um, so all, all of that's great. All of that makes sense, right? Uh, a couple other things. One thing that really stood out to me was that they said that they were going to... They talked about leaves. They talked about roots. They talked about stems. They didn't talk about the flower. They didn't talk about the bud. So I don't know if that was just something uh, like in how the article was written, or I don't know if they're actually ignoring the flower. Jayhan, sounds like you maybe have some detail there. The last uh, thing I would say is that, as Jayhan mentioned, it has to be grown in a certified like government approved uh, thing, right? So, and they only have one right now, and that one is gonna produce an estimated 18 kilograms of product this year. So, and then they said they have several, I, I don't remember the exact number, but they have like a lot more coming online soon, uh, which is great, but just, um, it kind of spoke to while this article is cool and why feeding 500 people uh, cannabis food is cool. Um, it just speaks to kind of the slow, the slow and steady approach they're taking. And I, I think that's okay. You know? Yeah, I, I agree. And you know, they, they do talk about dried cannabis, you know, flour, they talk about the narcotic plant, but they don't, they don't necessarily specify flowering tops. And that might just be a nomenclature issue, or this might just be uh, window dressing like yes there's going to be fan leaves in your food and, and trace amounts of cannabinoids but you know i really don't have much data about the potency or quality of products um coming from thailand so uh David, when are you booking your ticket to bangkok are you, you're going to take a wait and see approach to this yeah there's a lot of great points in this um i i have to figure out the COVID requirements to be able to travel but um whenever you guys are ready to make the arrangements maybe we can do our first on-site uh, uh either both we can do a before and after perhaps at one of these dinners guys um but in all seriousness right I, what i do really like about this article is that you know you guys kind of mentioned it to it looking at like fda regulations looking at you know um best practices for safety profiles of products and their their production process. Um, I'd say this is an example of how it can be done, right? And how they can show with government support to the world, hey, 
we can create safe products and we can provide them through a large dinner forum to many people with a university partnership as well from a research component. And this can be done and we can get data out of this and we can show that it's a safe uh, program and it's not, not scary um, when done correctly. There's lots of questions, of course. I mean, yeah, what is the product quality? You know, we, we look back or the potency, right? And that had, that's one of the biggest issues or biggest differentiators. It's not just its wealth, it's from the cannabis sativa plant. You know, if it's 3% THC or if it's 20% THC or a CBD dominant strain, all those little details from a dosing standpoint matter a lot. And I guess we'll just have to maybe keep uh, keep close to the evolution of this program and see what, what comes out in terms of potency and, and how the dynamics went. Awesome, David. Uh, so one last quick chance I'm going to give, I guess, our, our guest, Nicole, a chance to respond. Is this the lighter side of globalization and capitalism here? Um, are, are you, does, do events like this give you hope or they just kind of leave you scratching your head? Like, wh why stop there? Um, why not have research trials? Why not change the laws? Why? Um, I don't know, your response to the Bangkok Cannabis Food Fair, the, the sort of restaurant week <laughs> of cannabis. Yeah. Um, I do think it's the lighter side. I mean, you know, there's a lot, all the concerns that everyone else has already raised, of course, all of that, but setting, you know, just kind of in terms of an experience, um, I've personally participated in some that have been some of the like best cannabis experiences I've ever had, um, with it being really modulated by CBD beverages and, um, and CBD in kind of in, in between. And it was just like this really lovely curated modulated experience, um, that, kept, kept it awesome. And no, you know, it wasn't an overdosing situation, which it could easily be. So I'm all, I'm all for it. I'm all for innovation and, um, creating better, um, experiences that, that bring people together, um, around these, you know, these substances, compounds, plants, whatever in a positive, um, hopefully somewhat transformative way for them. Absolutely. And I really, really hope they post the recipes online. Well, if you want to check out that article, be sure to check out our notes and let us know if you're able to book a ticket to the Bangkok dinner where you get to try 140 cannabis mixed dishes across 40 restaurants. All right, we're going to take a short break and come back with rapid fire science. for the apocalypse. What's that, you may ask? Well, it's a women-crafted, botanically-infused indie graphic novel. It's a story about Sofia Spinoza, a dreamer rooted by her love of plant life. As she navigates the niggling faults of human existence by working on an apothecary in the apocalypse, she explores what it means to find peace of mind and acceptance. The ink spills June 20th as an online Sunday comic, a chapter per week delivered to your inbox along with the soundtrack that fuels the pages. Sign up today via crowdfunding at herbsfortheapocalypse.com. And we're back. Welcome to Rapid Fire Science, where we go around providing brief commentary and discussion about the peer-reviewed science articles for this week. And our first article is entitled Predicting Responses to Psychedelics, a Prospective Study from Frontiers in Pharmacology. This was a real page turner. Um, many of you may be wondering, what will happen if my friend takes a psychedelic? Will it change their life forever for the good, for the bad, or have no effect? 
Well, researchers set out to determine how can you predict uh, someone's psychedelic experience? Well, how will it change their well-being? What are the influential factors on the main outcome? And this study seemed to show that when it comes to psychedelic experiences, having a mystical type experience had a positive effect on well-being, you know, feeling ready for the psychedelic experience, having clear intentions about it, um, seemed to sort of protect against having a challenging experience and be associated with some sort of benefit or improvement in, in wellness, if we can even sort of say that about this work. Um, you know, and I know this is, this to me, you know, the study has a lot of limitations, uh, but was very fascinating read. So Sarah, you know, as our doctor professor here, I'd love for you to take a first sort of crack at this article and what did you find surprising uh, about it? Yeah, thanks, Jehan. <clears throat> I was really excited to see this article, uh, really nice sample size. Um, it did sort of remind me that the next article that we're going to talk about is one of the challenges of these human studies is sort of your, your sample group and their demographics. So one challenge to this study, I, I don't mean to sort of start off with something negative, but is that these are people who have self-selected to go through this experience. And so I think you're, it doesn't capture a whole range of other things that might relate to people not having a positive experience. And this is just a guess for me, um, but it, it was sort of like, are you gonna have a pretty good experience or are you gonna have a great experience? Because I feel like a lot of the people might've already been predisposed to having a positive experience, but I think it was still very important to look at things like what are your attitudes going into this? Although, like I said, they were mostly already positive. Um, and then how, and we've talked about this a lot on the show, how is the setting going to also um, contribute to the type of experience that people have? Um, you know, and as somebody who has overall in my past had generally negative cannabis experiences, I would like to see the same sort of research done with cannabis to try to, you know, tease apart what, what, and, and to, to dive even deeper, um, you know, as to different, you know, different attributes that, that people may have past experiences, or, you know, all kinds of different things that, that may predict um, the type of experience. Because I think, you know, like I said, while this is people self-selecting, like, yeah, you know, if you were in a room with a whole bunch of people and you polled them, who who's up for trying, you know, a psychedelic experience, you're gonna get a wide range. And if you move forward clinically, and we think about the clinical utility to recommend these to people who might be resistant, I think that that really might be where it's more important to predict if somebody is not already open to such an exper experience, what are the types of things to look for to, to try to predict whether the experience will be positive or negative and what, what steps might you be able to take prior to the experience to try to shift that in a more uh, positive direction. Thank you, Sarah. That is such an awesome point about the selection, you know, and, and not every, you know, the, the comedian Bill Hicks has this line he used to say, which was not all drug experiences are good. Some of them are great. 
And it sounds like maybe they designed the study after some of his comedy bits, but I mean, still, you got to start somewhere with the research. I think that's, you know, maybe by studying this group, um, they can set up um, people who are maybe nervous about using psychedelics, or it's not even on their health radar that consider it as a therapy, getting them ready for traveling within. And, and Nicole, I was wondering, you know, they use this term mystical type experiences. Now, typically when I think of mysticism, you know, I think of like guys in robes and smoke and like maybe some animal sacrifices and predicting fortunes and things like that. But what, you know, in your experience, what do you think they mean by, by mystical type experience? Is that of the Judeo-Christian mysticism or just, could you shed some light on that for the listener? Sure. I'd love to. Um, yeah, I really, um, you know, mystic um, to me and, and the way that it is, um, you know, kind of in its most maybe um, lowercase um, definition um, is is direct contact with with God or spirit or source or true nature, whatever you you know, whatever you want to call it. Um, but, you know, each of the all of the major religions have a, a mystical tradition. And it's about that. It's about um, a, a person having the ability to have direct contact rather than an, an intermediary um, through a rabbi or a priest or, you know, some sort of um, some sort of uh, official uh, in the in the church. So um, I, you know, um, I think I think what that speaks to in the in the research, and this is a it, this is a, a topic that's talked about a lot right now because when we see drug companies pulling um, particular compounds apart, um, either from synthetic compounds or from the natural ones, and saying, "Hey, here we've I, I, we've isolated the thing in this drug that helps with anxiety or depression. You don't need to. We can skip over the um, mystical experience. You don't need that." Um, it's a it's a big topic of conversation. Um, I think what that speaks to is the idea in my experience and my, um, I'll, I'll say opinion, that these are really tools, um, just like deep meditation um, or other um, technologies or tools that help us as human beings um, recognize um, our connection to a larger thing, a larger something. And it's that experience of seeing, oh, I'm not really just this isolated ego that tells me every day long that I'm not enough and that I should be something bigger or better and constantly comparing myself against, you know, my peers, um, in, in a number of ways as we do in this culture, um, that, um, that seeing that having that really powerful experience of physically ex really experiencing, um, ourselves to be interconnected with one another and to be part of something larger. That's what I think is really transformative. Um, and so I think that's what that hypothesis, and I hope there will be a lot more research. I know the, you know, the, there've been several, um, uh, really, um, widely touted ones that have talked about that. So that's why, that's what I think about when I hear about mystical experience. And that's why I, I continue to think important. Yeah, absolutely. I like what you said there about, you know, these, these mystical type experiences, at least kind of what I heard was can be viewed as being connected or disconnected with something, be it your, your universe, your ecosystem, the, the valley beyond the universe, whatever colorful language you want to use. But I like this as sort of feeling it as a connection to things. Um, so, uh, David, I want to go to you and just say, you know, was there something in this article that stood out to you about looking at 
you know, set setting and intention when it comes to using psychedelics as a predictor. I mean, would you speak to that? Yeah. Um, let me, let me think about that a little bit. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot, this is a pretty dense article. There's a lot of good, good com content in here. Um, when you think about that, you really have to, um, kind of even to Nicole's, Nicole's con um, mention there of like mystical in the lowercase sense, like we have to really look at what those words mean and how we classify them. Um, when we start looking at their components, um, as kind of predictors and responses when we're doing like data aggregation, if that makes sense. Um, so, you know, kind of looking at that, there's, you know, is there causation? Is there not causation? Um, you know, causation doesn't always mean correlation, but when you look at that, I'm just looking at this, this quote here, right? Importantly, you know, these present results, these present results support the long held but little tested assumption that set and setting are key components to determining responses to psychedelics. And, you know, what I would say, what I would take away from that is that you're really looking at the idea that whether you're being set up for success or not, um, what the environment is, and it's, it comes back to the bigger picture of just not being about a single API. It's, it's about how you're set up, how you're going into it, what your mindset is and how that all ties together. And whether we're we're in the right place at the right time to be able to have a positive experience, um, I don't know. That's kind of my thoughts. There's a lot there, but all right. Th thank you, David. Yeah, I agree, and I love research that tests um, long-held assumptions that we we don't question. Is set and setting and intention important for these very very potent psychoactive substances? And it seems that the research is is leading to yes. Um, you know, one of the other, you know, so this has been a great thing, and I'd like to move on to our next article, uh, which is entitled Pre-Injury Use of Marijuana and Outcomes in Trauma Patients. Um, and, and one of the, you know, these things that we kind of think about is, you know, does cannabis make, you know, if you get injured and, and you know, you have a, a back injury, sometimes people say cannabis can help with that. Or if you have multiple sclerosis, maybe a cannabis product, an extract might be able to help with that as some clinical research has shown, certain preparations may help with certain conditions. But what about if you were using cannabis before you developed the condition or, you know, got that injury? So, you know, lots of recent studies have examined the effects of cannabis and its preparation in various populations, um, but there's kind of limited research on the use of cannabis products in severely injured trauma patients. And especially, you know, what happens if they're using it before the trauma happens? Um, so that's exactly what some researchers worked into. And they looked and apparently, allegedly, uh, they found that the use of cannabis did not improve survival in trauma patients, but may have provided some improvement in other health-related outcomes in regards to traumatic brain injury. Um, but, you know, the mechanism behind this needs a little bit of work. It's unclear how it works. But, you know, Sarah, you've done some fair amount of research in cannabis and, like, neuropathic models. Um, would you like to share your thoughts on this article? Yeah, so this, um, I'm familiar with this area because, uh, as you said, I, I do research on the sort of therapeutic potential of cannabinoids for injury. Uh, we have uh, spinal cord injury research that goes on in my lab, as well as stroke 
injury, and especially for the for the spinal cord injury, and, and also traumatic brain injury as well. Um, you know, when when writing grants to going back to funding to get funding to do this research, you go into the literature and try to see what's out there. And prior to this article, there were two other previously published articles that found similar things. Um, again, just suggesting that, as David mentioned, there is a correlation between cannabis use and improved outcomes from traumatic injuries. So I was happy to see another reference, you know, that I can include in my significant statement for my grant applications. But, you know, it, I think it's important because it clues us in, well, it clues us into many things. One, how much more research we need in this area. Um, but two, the different ways in which we can think about how cannabis might be protective. And, you know, you mentioned, Jehan, that we, we don't know the mechanism sort of underlying this. And when we do studies in the laboratory with spinal cord injury and with traumatic brain injury, we treat the animals first with cannabinoids to try to give ourselves sort of the, the best possible chance of protecting. And so if you have something protective on board in the body, will that help prevent a lot of the inflammation and injury that happens uh, with trauma? And that is different from if somebody experiences traumatic brain injury or spinal cord injury, and then they're admitted to the hospital, can we try to mitigate some of the injury by then administering cannabinoids? So it's really two distinct important ways that we study this in animals. And it's important to think about that clinically when we want to go on to study this in humans. So these are just hints sort of, you know, tidbits that maybe there's something there, like you said, that if if I've sort of already protected my body a little bit by using a substance that might be anti-inflammatory, is that what is providing protection? But as I mentioned with the previous article, one of the challenges in this article is that the two different groups of people are pretty different from the beginning, right? So you aren't picking two different groups of people telling one of them to use cannabis for years and telling the other group not to, and then get them into car accidents and see the outcome. You're just, you've got what you've got in the data. It's a huge sample size, but it is just, you know, looking at, you know, subsets of people. So they're not age matched. They're not matched by race. The cannabis users are not going to be matched in any way by their cannabis use, frequency, all of that. So it's it's hints, but it's interesting hints. And again, I think it just helps us to think about how we need to design animal and human studies moving forward. You're absolutely right, sir. And this just raises so many questions for me because I don't want to, you know, have people walk away with the idea, or, or maybe I do, but I don't think I want people to walk away with saying, well, I guess I should just smoke weed all the time in case my brain ever gets injured. Um, you know, but it does kind of beg the question that is there a preparation of cannabis that could be helpful in preventative medicine? And maybe it's something along the lines of a non-intoxicating formulation. Um, and you know, that might have tremendous potential for, I can't imagine people who might be at risk of um, an ischemic event or heart attack or, or something like that. It would be really fascinating to see if like, 
you know, I'm just making things up here, listener, just for conceptual purposes, but like maybe there's a cannabinoid like CBG or something that's got these great antioxidant properties and immune modulating properties. Um, but, you know, I, I really wonder where this will go. Um, and Sarah, just real quick, you know, who funded your research? That obviously wasn't a cannabis company, but just real quick, who funded your, your research on spinal cord stuff? Yeah, so you know when you when you mentioned Jehan, you know, are there populations of people that might want to take something for protection? Our spinal cord injury research was funded by the Department of Defense, and so um, the Department of Defense um, actively supports cannabinoid research to look at you know potential benefits, especially in light of the opioid epidemic, and trying to come up with you know safer uh, strategies for treating their soldiers. And so, you know, again, I was thinking of this when I proposed um, the research to the DOD, um, you know, prophylactically soldiers going out on the battlefield, again, non-intoxicating. This grant was focused solely on CBD. Um, so, you know, prophylactic treatment with something non-psychoactive or something that can be administered, you know, right at the, the time of injury. Yeah, I guess I would give the... Uh the Green Beret, a whole new sense of meaning uh, if the military starts using cannabis products uh, to as, as a health prevention, injury prevention strategy. Uh, couldn't help it, huh? Couldn't, uh, couldn't help it. Couldn't help it with, all, <laughs> with, with the puns. Um, Nicole, I love know, a pun. Good. Well, maybe you can find one because um, I'd love to get some of your thoughts and responses just to this type of research. Oh, well, I mean, I just think all research is good research um, if it's well-designed. So, you know, more, more science, um, more um, just, yeah, more science <laughs> in the world generally um, is great. Uh, I mean, I, yeah, just that concept that Sarah was just speaking to right then and this idea about being able to prevent um, impacts of injury. I mean, I just, it's fascinating. Um, I don't know too much about it, but, but yeah, yes, more. If, if I if I could add in, you know, I think two big points that as I'm even just listening and reflecting on the article, one, the idea of prevention, preventive maintenance, you know, uh, prophylaxis from a medical standpoint and, you know, from a GMP, put on my hat for a second, you know, getting folks into, hey, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, right? Um, you, you all, Everybody has, you know, most folks have cars, right? And okay, do you change your oil regularly or do you wait until you start getting that weird knocking sound in your engine say, geez, do you think I should change my oil? Um, doing things preventive makes life so much easier. And it's great to see, you know, the DOD has to make sure that our soldiers are, you know, successful, stay alive, and the cost, you know, to society beyond with PTSD or traumatic injuries, and, you know, they get it, right? They're looking at, you know, what are ways, what are creative ways that we can actually prevent, limit harm, reduce risk, et cetera, and, and that applies to everywhere in our life and our businesses, so I think there's a big overarching concept there, and then number two, right, is I like that this article did call out and acknowledge, hey, look, the population demographics were very different. That's a challenge. There's always going to be confounding factors. There's always limitations, but acknowledging those and having the data from the first step, we can at least start teasing things out. And we have data behind it other, other than just, you know, Jehan and I sitting around and saying, well, I think this would be cool about that. I could hypothesize that. Like, let's put some numbers behind it. And there's margin of error, but it's a great starting point. So it's really exciting to see this. 
Yeah. And in terms of the social sharing idea, um, you know, I, I, I understand the instinct and impulse and I'm, I'm for that. Um, I truly am for adults being able to share, um, with each other. Um, I, I think that it, it does, um, possibly recreate a situation that we had, you know, that we had with cannabis where, um, it just kind of cracked the door open for businesses to start operating. And then we have all of these, you know, kind of traditional industry things that come along with them, like I've talked about in the article. And so what I would love to see, um, in that, in that bill would be at least some statements of intention, uh, around how we want to regulate in the future. Um, I have a, there's an organization called the California Association for Net Positive Psychedelics um, that we have started um, along these lines um, to try to advocate um, for some really concrete ways um, that regulation may, might look like um, kind of some linchpin issues. Um, and those are really looking at the idea of severely, lim severely limiting, strictly limiting um, direct to consumer marketing and advertising so that we can sort of avoid the lifestyle brand approach to psychedelics um, and marketing to people in that way so that they find them through therapeutic methods um, instead of just marketing um, to um, totally eliminate the ever possible, the possibility ever that any new plastic will be used in any of the packaging for any of these compounds that we regulate under California law, um, compostable, biodegradable, recycled plastic reclaimed from the ocean um, that seems like a pretty uncontroversial thing we should be able to put in there. And then the last um, that I kind of mentioned, which was um, mandating some kind of public benefit company um, structure with some actual with some actual teeth. So if we could add those to the bill, I'd be um, and we at the at camp would be would be very happy. So we'll we'll continue advocating for those. Um, it's going to be you know this is a long long road now. Excellent. And you know, it's such a fascinating time to be in this research space, uh, thinking about can we predict people's responses and outcome to a substance? Um, but my crystal ball is saying that that's about it for our research discussion. And we're going to take a short break and probably come back with a game. At Marku and Aurora, we understand that navigating the investment landscape in cannabis and psychedelics is complex. We utilize our in-house expertise in science to support investors and innovators. Reach out to us to start a conversation about how we can help guide your investment decisions and prepare your next venture for success. back. Welcome to today's game. And the grand prize that our group will be playing for is for helping to expand scientific thought. And here with today's game is Nigam. You've, you've prepared a game for us. I have. So I'm taking us back to our first ever game that we played with our friend Brett Green, Guess the Psychedelic. Uh, so we have this scale that we use. The scale is from LSD to impossible. So I'm going to let everyone know that this is just right in the middle. This is like, it's it's not that close to LSD, but it's kind of going out in the impossible range. So uh, keep that in mind uh, for, for people playing the game at home. Go ahead and crack open that Wikipedia list of psychoactive substances because you're going to need it. So um, the, the rules of the game are it's classic 20 question style. Uh, only yes or no questions, and you can't make an outright guess until after 
five questions have been issued um any other uh prefaces needed or should we jump in i'm ready to ask yes or no questions all right jayhan it's on you man let's go oh i meant after someone else goes okay then it's on nicole i think she had to start uh, (laughs) it's on somebody it's not on me it's it's fine so um let's start with something simple is this psychedelic uh covered under california's psychedelic decrim bill no it is not who's next does it come from an animal uh, not that I'm aware of. Let, let's put like a, 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 let's just say no for, for the sake of guessing. Let's say no. So it doesn't come from a sponge or like, does that count like a creature? Jayhan's just got me on this. I can't, I gotta, I gotta try this sponge stuff. I, he's just always talking about these psychedelic <laughs> sponges ever since he read that article. Um, but no, it's, uh, no, it's, it's not sourced from, uh, from an animal. Okay. Is it, um, is it, is it a, oh, sorry. No, go ahead, Nicole. Oh, I was just going to, so is it a plant? It is not a plant. Does it require some sort of chemical or physical alteration to be done from its nat, uh, original state to be used as a psychedelic used uh, for human use? Oh man. Uh Dave, if I had to answer that outright, I would say no, but maybe like can you like go, what is the root of what you're asking? Can you ask <laughs> that as a yes or no? I'm trying to I'm trying to help you here. Like wherever it comes from, um this product, uh this this psychedelic, can you just grab it and and ingest it, apply it or do you have to do some sort of like thermal treatment, chemical derivation? The once again, you're what, what is? Can you ask? Yo, know, ask me like a a, a yes or no, uh, question about Shit. this. Um, we can oh. come back to you if you want. Cause come like, back to me. Okay, okay. Well, it's a great question, but compliant. you're making it hard. Yeah, you want to help yes out? No. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I... Compliance assessment. You're struggling with this yes or no question. <laughs> you talking? You talking to me? Oh no. Um, Sarah, do you have another one or? Uh yeah. Is it synthesized in a laboratory? Bing, 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 bing. And that covers Dave's too. Yes. There we go. Yeah, that's that's what I was trying to get at. That being super specific. All right, Nicole, what's your question? Does the name have a number in it? Uh, Yes. Okay. So I'm just going to review. We've asked six questions. So um, it was not part of the California decrim bill we reviewed. It's not from an animal. It's not from a plant. It um, does uh, not necessarily require an alteration. Uh, it is synthesized. Uh, and the name has a number in it. I have another one. Yeah, Nicole's, another on, Nicole's one. hot on it. She's hot on it. She knows what I'm thinking about. Is it a phenethylamine? Ooh. Um, indeed it is. Oh. Oh, oh. Nicole went all chemistry. I thought you were a lawyer, Nicole. I thought you were a psychonaut lawyer. You're going all chemistry I, on us. I do a lot of reading. A lot <laughs> of reading. She's showing the psychonaut side, which I'm comfortable with. So let's let's <laughs> let's get that's why we're here. That's why we're playing this game. I picked this uh I picked this for a reason. When do I get to guess? 
Oh, you, a- after after, after five. Five, you can guess now. Yeah. Should shout it out if you want. Is it two CB? No. Oh, I was gonna say that too. Oh my gosh, I'm so glad I didn't guess that because I was like, it sounds like it has a number in it. It's from Fecal <laughs> by Alexander Shulgin's. Does it have the number twenty five in it? N- no, it does not. But but y'all are y'all are you're getting a lot warmer. <laughs> So can I just ask a broader question then? Is it in the 2C family? Yes. Mm. So do I get to do we get to guess again or am I done guessing? No, no, you, I got it wrong. The whole group can rock and roll all the way until you hit got 20 it. and then everyone loses. <laughs> so so is is it 2CI? No. Although y'all hit 2CB, those are the those are the ones everyone knows about. What what other ones are there, I wonder? I told you to open the Wikipedia page. I tried to I tried to help. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. And we are at just for the record, we're at ten questions. You got ten more. You're you got y'all are pretty warm though. Joe, please cut out this long pause while everyone is <laughs> scanning the Wikipedia page about two C drugs. So the list of these two C drugs, I mean, of the ones. Remember, we're trying to keep this on, you know, in the in the sort of easy to moderate of guessing the psychedelic because you could get into some pretty obscure stuff. So, Jayhan, or sorry, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, there's only a few TC compounds. I mean, I might want to just throw out something like, you know, two C two dash two. Wait, but is that? Are you asking me yes or no? Is it two C T two? Yes. No, it is not. Yeah. Oh, there you go. But I'll uh, I'll give you guys a little free hint. Um, uh, so it's not quite too impossible. I mean, yeah, you could read uh, P call or T call, and you could pick the most obscure chemical. I did not do that. This is like a thing. It was in the news before. It's like it's like a known thing. It was like a thing. I don't know if this counts as a guess, but um, well, maybe it is. No, I was gonna ask. I kind of want to ask how easy is it to procure like in terms of like, is it available on like college campuses? Right. So that that's like, you're sniffing down the right path, but maybe ask it as like a yes or no question that I could say yes or no. <laughs> Just for that was a yes or no. Can you get it on a college campus? <laughs> yeah. Well, is it, is I, I mean, we could we, on a that, college campus. Let's just say it again. Is it easily attainable on a college campus, similar to other hallucinogens? In what in what year? In what Would year? You in what country? Say <laughs> that in recent. Oh yeah, I guess no one's going to college campuses to buy drugs. These days. <laughs> well, there's also who's um, and who's on these college campuses? You always have those weirdos that have access to like these obscure things. So. Um, okay, Jay, how to answer your question, just to, to, to play nice with the game, I would say, no, it's not like a common thing that you're going to find on a college campus in the year 2021. Can I right. guess? Is yeah. it, um, which one do I want to, is it five APB? Oh, wow. It is, it is not, um, uh, remember, it's uh, wow. I don't even know what that is. Sarah's like throwing thing, crazy things at me now. Um, it's not, and I'm gonna highlight to the group. We now have uh, like 14 ish guesses. So 
and remember, I'm, okay, I'm going to read it to you all again, starting with the, I'll be a succinct. So it is in the 2CB family. It is, um, n- does not have the number 25 in it. It is not 2CI. It is not 2CT2. It is not commonly on college campuses in the year 2021. It is not 5APB. Should I give you all a hint? I, wa- I kind of want to give you all a hint. Is it? Is it, is it something called 2C7? No. Oh, wait, Nicole. Um, can, are, are, can, are you sure that's what you wanted to say? Are you sure you don't want to say something like really close to that? I wanted to say something really close to that. That was T7. Right. Okay. Combine the two things you just said. <laughs> I don't know. So many. It's just a letter. I mean, it's just a number sandwich now. 227. Apartment 227. Um, okay, I'm a, I'm, I'm a big, I'm a big, uh, I'm a big Nicole. Two CV two P seven. Wait, wait, no, Jayon, try it again. Try it again. You were, you were. Almost, say, say it one more time. Try, try to say it right this time, though. Uh, oh gosh, I don't know if I can. Um, you were, you, you, you and Nicole are just like, y- y'all are like, just. Oh wow, you're like nanometer close to this thing. You're like almost saying the name. Two C two T seven. That would he- okay, there was one too many twos in it. One last time. Two C T seven. Hey, Nicole wins. <laughs> ding, right. ding 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 ding. You advance uh, science. Sixteen or seventeen, we got it on. Woo! I think if it takes more than twenty, I think if this group takes more than twenty questions, we're like past impossible, right? Or whatever. So. Oh um, man, that was a, that was a bit of a a toughie because I was like looking at this list of two C B compounds. I'm like. He didn't choose 2CB butterfly or 2CB dragonfly well, or 2CB hemifly or just the 2CB <laughs> fly, did he? I can, uh, I, I know we're, sh- I know we're short on HLI time. Uh, oh, excuse me. Uh, HLE time, ecosystem time. Nicole's with us. We're in an ecosystem. So, um, yes. but I did want to share just with the listener and, and with you all just briefly, uh, why I pick this and just like a couple sentences of like, uh, interesting historicals. So I picked this because, um, and I've said this a lot as we're doing these speaking engagements, the podcast clubhouse, all this stuff. Um, I don't know why nobody's studying 2C compounds. Shulgin is, um, you know, pioneer in the space. Shulgin loved it. And now, you know, we have all these publicly traded companies on Ibogaine and uh, DMT and some of these other things. But I don't know. I'm not saying people do 2C. So I just wanted to bring a little attention on it. Um, so Shulgin himself had his list of his like, 12 uh favorite compounds um and this was on the list now interestingly another reason i brought this up is because uh we were talking about legality legality of substances right so this was in one of those gray areas and in the early 2000s this was sold in what is called the smart shops which is kind of like a euphemism for like a place where you go to buy like gray area drugs in like uh europe or in japan or stuff like this so um this was sold in these smart shops in the early 2000s, but then there was a big controversy about it because there were deaths. But the reason they found there were these deaths is because these people were also using amphetamine or MDMA. They were taking five times the recommended dose. They were doing all these things. So, um, And now it's uh, it's outlawed in, in most countries. But I, I just thought it was kind of fun. I mean, we had fun guessing, but now I'm getting a little bit serious about it. Like, the, It just, to me, like was a cool avenue to talk about the history the breadth of molecules available the things that 
or interesting to the pioneers that still aren't being studied. And then also the, the drug laws and, and why is it black and white uh, versus like, let's learn about the efficacy and safety and treat it as a, a therapy or useful substance. So um, I don't know. Those are kind of my drives behind playing by picking this, this substance. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Awesome. I didn't expect to be. That's cool. That, thank you, guys. That was cool when everyone said thank you to me after I made y'all go through the rigors of guessing 2CT7, also known as Blue Mystic, or I think this one's funny, 7th Heaven, which when you Google is all about some TV show from the 90s, right? So. With Michael Landon. Yep. <laughs> okay, no. Jay, um, Jay that's, Hall, a, that's a heck of a side effect of a drug. Makes you feel like you're in a 90s. That's our show. Thanks for clicking, tapping, swiping, or however you are hearing this. We appreciate it. Thank you to our trusty audio engineer. This show is edited and mixed by Joe Leonardo. And thank you to our podcast cover artist, Selena Lee, for crafting custom artwork for each episode. Check it out. <laughs>